Welcome to the Insight Podcast from HRE Source. In this episode, we meet a woman whose career is one that can only leave us mere mortals in awe. A career made all the more remarkable for our guests' very humble, yet wonderfully grounded starting point. Dr. Fiona Hill worked as an intelligence analyst for George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and in 2017 was invited in to work with the third president and ultimately provide a witness testimony at his impeachment hearing. Dr. Hill's latest book is titled, There is Nothing for You Here, using a phrase from her dad, Alf, an ex-minor, who simply wanted the best for his bright, inquisitive, and determined daughter. A bonus point for anyone who guesses the word missing from that phrase, and here's a clue. Fiona's from County Durham, and her accent is still very present. If I tell you it took 12 months to arrange this chat, you'll appreciate how very much in demand our guest is. And I can also confirm it was most certainly worth the wait. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the Insight with HR Resource podcast, one Dr. Fiona Hill. I have been trying for quite some time to find time, and Fiona's been able to find time for me for this podcast, and finally we've managed to arrange it. There's so much going on. My schedule looks like nothing compared to this lady's schedule. Uh, We're going to talk about uh, the book, which was published at the back end of 2021, October 2021. Um, It's been a bit of a hit. I've read it. I've actually got the audio version as well, so Fiona's been talking to me. Whilst walking the dog, whilst jogging. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to dip in to a book that is actually, it's, it's part autobiography, it's it's part also an analysis of a political structure. And it, it works, and, and Fiona can explain that in, in more detail. However, I'd like to focus on the autobiograph- autobiographical, if I could say the word, uh, element of it, the memoir, and the person, because I think in here is a really, really interesting story. Welcome, Fiona. Oh, thanks so much, Dev. Really great to be with you. And we had success, finally, for the first time. And there you are in Washington uh, talking to us right now. And what I would like to do is, first of all, just ask you a question which might, I don't know whether it's going to be challenging not to answer. What was your earliest memory? You know, my earliest memory is of my sister being born. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people would probably, you know, say the same sort of thing, some big life event. Um, I remember actually being taken by my uh, grandmother to go and visit my mom in hospital um, after my sister was born and being told this is your baby sister. And actually, I have another big memory around this, which, (laughs) you know, fits into that kind of practicality and harshness of, you know, growing up in the northeast of England. And also my grandmother said, um, because I pulled out a little magazine, I was two and a half, and my mom would always read me this um, little magazine. My mom was a a nurse, and this was something like Nurse Nancy, some little kind of cartoon book or something that my mom would read to me, you know, kind of the whole having a mother as this sort of symbol uh, idea. And my grandma said, oh, no, no, your mom won't be able to read that to you now. She's got a new baby. You're going to have to learn to read yourself. Okay. <laughs> and I remember thinking, ah! <laughs> Well, anyway, it was actually, I think that's kind of what started me off being an early reader. Because yeah. after that, I would go up and ask people to teach me words so they could read it to me because I'd just <laughs> internalise it. My mom wouldn't. Well, I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> but I do remember that shock. And people say, oh, you can't possibly remember that. But actually, you know, I, th- I think it is the case that people, some sort of life shock. I have an earlier vague memory of our chimney being on fire and being carried out by oh, wow. a fireman. But I don't know whether that's, you know, kind of one of those false memories because people yeah. told me I was carried out by a fireman. I don't know yeah. whether I can really remember that's this. And I've just kind weird. of, you know, yeah, figured that out as a, uh, you know, kind of a, a sort of an image in my head. But that one I definitely remember because I remember the jolt. <laughs> Surprise! Mum's not going to read me my 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 little magazine, <laughs> my it, little comic. Sure See, I'm my, saying American magazine is a comic, my comic book. Well, one of the one of the earliest memories for me was um, not taking part in the bonfire night um, uh, fun that my sister, who's a couple of years older than me, was down with my dad in the garden. And my mother was with me, and I've got this memory of having this small, you know, dinky toy car. Right? Yeah, dinky toys. 
It was an American style ambulance with little flashing lights. And I would have been about two and a half. So about about that same time, but thinking, why am I not down there having fun and set them up here? And, and it was that sort of, why not me? Why can't I do that? So, yeah, it's that kind of jolt. So maybe it's that sort of first uh, uh, consciousness where you've been excluded for some reason. <laughs> I suppose negative memories do have that. I mean, it's a positive memory at the same time with the birth of my sister, but, you know, ne- positive negative, I suppose. Yeah. Negative realising that, oh, things have just changed in a rather dramatic fashion. And one other thing as well with, with ourselves, we actually are the same generation, um, right. one in the same year. Uh, some of the earliest Generation Xs. So we're not the baby boomers and we're not the millennials. We're Generation X. We're uh, lost. <laughs> the lost generation. We don't know who we are. That transitional phase, weren't we? Sort yeah, of exactly. Bit, bits, of, bits of everything, taking people who, who, you know, technology just about starting and getting into different areas and different techniques at school that were being experimented on. Um, but one, one thing with school that I think um, struck me from your book, that again, there's a connection, Nine, 1973. Right. I remember because I followed my cousin's football team, which I later sort of wised up from, but I was following Leeds United and they lost to Sunderland in the FA Cup final. That oh, was, yes. But later in that year, there was a royal wedding. And I think that's something that you and I both were given a, ch- a challenge by our school to do something about the royal wedding, which is Princess Anne and Captain Mark Phillips. Yes. Tell us a little bit about your, your uh, yeah, challenge with that one. Yes. So, oh gosh, there's been so many royal weddings uh, since, hasn't there? But that was kind of a big one. And of course, you know, by that point, um, people were getting used to things being televised. Uh, but, you know, as people who are of our generation and generations before might look back, um, a t- television was a luxury item. Yeah. And it wasn't something that every household uh, had. And it certainly wasn't something that our household had. You know, my mom and dad had um, decided um, breaking, you know, generations of family tradition that they wanted to have their own house my dad had been actually homeless as a kid and it had really weighed upon him and he wanted to have a house of his own even though frankly they couldn't really afford it but they got one of these you know 30 odd year mortgages through a building society that you know and um you know they decided they were going to make this work but the house was pretty much empty <laughs> there's really nothing much in it a lot of the time the utilities were sh- switched off because they couldn't always pay the bills once they would paid the mortgage and they certainly couldn't afford a tv either the license uh, or the uh, license fee or the TV itself. And we were given an assignment, you know, I was eight years old. And again, it's one of these things I remember very vividly. I mean, we had a radio, but we were supposed to describe the Royal Wedding, what we saw on television. And I thought, well, I, I can describe what I hear, but I don't have a television. And uh, my mom, you know, marched off over to the school uh, and there were some other parents there as well, a lot of, you know, kids in Bishop Auckland County Durham at that point, you know, people's dads were out of work, lots of people were in the same sort of situation, they didn't have a lot of money. And they said, well, we, they can't do this assignment. There's some, you know, kind of other arrange. Can you arrange for, you know, someone to do a showing of the Royal Wedding if you've got this assignment of, you know, you know, do we supposed to draw a picture, write an essay, describe it in detail? And, you know, the teacher, you know, said, Oh, well, sorry, you know, I suppose they'll fail. I mean, how callous. (laughs) And so I tried to kind of basically improvise. I got hold of my dad at a little portable radio that used to listen to the the football on, you know, probably like the Leeds United and Sunderland match, because I remember him screaming with joy when Sunderland beat Leeds, you know, in in the final. And um, I, there were some neighbours across the way who had a television and not just a, any television. They have a black and white one, they had a colour television. Wow. And I snuck along on the, on the grass near their house and started watching it through the window, listening <laughs> to it on the radio. But unfortunately, they saw that someone was out there. I don't think they saw that it was me and they closed the curtains. Oh, so they're aware they were being snooped upon. So they're just... <laughs> yes. There's like that feeling of, oh, somebody out there, what's going on? <laughs> Because I was too embarrassed to ask them if I could go in because it was just sort of the whole thing was mortifying and mum and dad didn't want to ask because they're just on principle. My mum just wanted to, you know, but I, I was trying to improvise because I thought, well, I don't want to, I don't want to fill this assignment. You know, when you were a little kid, you kind of, you don't want to be ostracised. I don't know what the other, I can't remember what the other kids in school did, but at least I was able to describe in vivid detail the bits that I, you know, saw in uh, in those, you know, first parts of uh, watching, you know, so it was very heavy on the whole early part of the ceremony, a little lighter touch on the wow. rest of it, but I was able to draw a picture. And I remember uh, drawing the picture of Mark Phillips in his uniform with his hat on and, you know, kind uh, of oh, yeah. on and everything. So there you are. Improvisation <laughs> is the key. Yeah. And with the determination to get it done and not, I mean, okay, you could say that there's a fear of, 
I mean, I, I know you just talked about fear for for the BBC Reef uh, lectures, but there was a, there was there was a fear there of of being left out. Yes, um, exactly. Obviously, that you know you, you hadn't been able to see it because you didn't have television, and the, maybe the guilt or the shame of that. Um, but, but that really wasn't any any guilt or shame because I mean, your father was was he at that stage? Um, he, he was he was a hospital porter. But Look, and if we look back to the 19, yeah, he'd been a miner. I mean, miner for, you know, 15 odd uh, years, 16 years. And the mines had all closed down. So he'd gone down the mines when he was 14 um, in County Durham. And this was the whole period, you know, when he went down was the nationalisation of the industry, the creation of, you know, the, the whole um, nationalised coal industry. And, um, you know, he went down the mines in, I think it would be 1946, so immediately after the war when you've just had the nationalisation, 1946, 1947, because he was born in 1932, you know, with the Depression and everything. But then, you know, great period of work in the 50s, 60s come along and all the mines start to close and he starts moving from mine to mine. And then eventually uh, all the local mines have gone. There's a limit to how far he can go on his bicycle because, I mean, my dad, dad didn't have a car and if he, you know, buses and things, all the villages were... You know, imploding because the mines were closing and all the work around them um, at that point in County Durham. He, he got a job briefly in um, uh, the steelworks at Walsingham, also were brickworks, but you know these were all sort of temporary jobs. And in the steelworks, somebody fell in one of the vats of molten steel and that really put Dad off, as you can imagine. It's pretty yeah. dangerous, uh, nasty work. And it was somebody he knew and I think he was quite traumatized by that. And then he found a job in uh, Bishop Auckland Hospital, but he was still living. You know, up at that point when the hospital job uh, came along, um, you know, nine, ten miles away, and he would cycle, um, you know, every day to commute. And that's where he met my mum. But, you know, hospital porters, along with cooks and, you know, kind of cleaners in uh, the hospital were at the lowest rung of the economic ladder there. And we're now seeing that in the UK again with... Um, hospital workers and nurses going on strike, people were pretty much on the bread line, you know, on the poverty yeah. line, with those jobs, grave diggers, you know, this is that, you know, when you get into the 70s, these are all the people who are always on strike because their wages are so low that they can't make ends meet. But mum was a nurse. I mean, she was a midwife. But as soon as my sister came along, after, you know, kind of a year or so of trying to work, she realised she couldn't because there was no healthcare, uh, rather childcare um, in the healthcare system. And um, my mum couldn't afford to pay for childcare because she would have been paying for childcare what she was actually earning and so she decides to you know basically come out of the workforce and we basically plunged down there to you know well below the poverty line but dad wanted to keep working I mean there was you know at that period I mean again this is you know kind of one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about most people want to work they yeah. want to have a chance you know to get a have a job and dad just couldn't imagine not working you know, so he would just put in every hour he possibly could to expand his shifts, but it didn't extend to yeah. buying televisions and, you know, basically having a car, a telephone or anything like that. There is a, there is a connection, isn't there, between the, 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 not least just the strikes and the potential threat of power cuts that we're seeing over here um, and the warning signs of that. But also that poverty that you talk about, the, um, the, the salaries, the earning of people in the, in the front line, uh, and the reason why they're going on strike. And one of the, one of the things I heard recently was the fact that um, there are hospitals that have actually got food banks in the cafeteria. Yeah. No, wow. seriously, we've gone we've gone back full circle to the 1970s. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, the period that, you know, you and I are talking about, the people thinking about the winter of discontent. And, you no, know, but why was that? Because public sector salaries were so low. Yeah. And, you know, I had free school meals, um, although my dad had, uh, he turned our back garden into you know basic an allotment my granddad had an allotment uh you know people were always like growing their own food and just you know trying to make men ends meet and would share food with you know, with each other as well i mean food banks now are filling in for that because people although actually in bishop Auckland people have a lot of allotments there's, you know there's a big been a big revival of allotments and people you know growing their own food and i'm sure you know all the way across uh, county durham but, uh, and then there was the cooperative and obviously but people really were trying to pull together just to basically get through everything and yeah. yeah we've we've gone back full circle it's really disturbing I and mean, this is this is the um impact unfortunately of all of the austerity policies after the great recession of 2000 2009 i talk about all of this in the book and you know basically a uh, decades of not really paying attention uh sufficiently to the emergence of these huge gaps and inequality and, and in health and well-being as well. I mean, basically, in some parts of uh, the northeast of England, people are very well aware of this. You've got 50% childhood poverty. 
And we had that when we were growing up. Uh, and it, it hasn't changed it in many respects. I mean, there's been a, a diminution, but you've basically got entrenched now uh, child poverty and incredibly poor um, health outcomes, which was improving actually. Health overall was improving, you know, back in the period when we were kids because there was still a lot of investment in the National Health Service and obviously not as much demands on it. It's, it is scary where, where we're looking at where we are right now, I think. Um, but obviously, going, just going back to the, um, the, the younger Fiona and you, your school life and obviously your determination to be able to do well. Obviously, you were bright, a bright child, um, good, strong family around you. And you did very well at school. You passed your 11 plus. Something else. Yeah, so- I don't know whether <clears throat> you did that as well, David. Sorry, just a bit of a... <coughs> yeah, I did the 11 plus. Uh, yeah, because the, the, it was getting phased out in a lot of the schools. I mean, we, we, you and I were products of that real expansion of education and educational opportunity uh, that came about actually in the 50s as well as in the 1960s, really taking off when we were born and start to move into schooling. And of course, the comprehensive school system also emerges in that same time frame when we're born and it's expanding out across the country. And I was in the last cohort of people, particularly at my school, some of the other primary schools in Bishop Organ, I think it might have already been phased out, but my school at the time, Etherly Lane, we were the last year that took the 11 plus. Um, but I mean, it wasn't to go to a grammar school at that point. Uh, I think it was just for the poss- possible streaming uh in the comprehensive school but it was also used by uh, the headmaster of my school who'd had a long track record of sending uh, kids to the local grammar schools but also to some of the um, fee-paying private schools that would give children scholarships i ended up being actually offered a scholarship on the basis of the 11 plus to go to the local um girls school it really was kind of not so local up in durham uh, but i um i wasn't able that's you know part of the whole uh, story I wasn't able to take it because my parents couldn't afford the associated Absolutely. costs. All the sports yeah. equipment, all the uniforms, all yeah, the, the uniforms, the bus fares. Because I mean, obviously, I wouldn't get any subsidised bus fares at private school. Uh, it was uh, so. Sometimes, you know, opportunity comes along. Um, that, was a, that was a great opportunity, but you can't take it because you don't have the wherewithal. I mean, in the book, I call that the infrastructure of opportunity, and sometimes the literal infrastructure is is missing. The, the means of getting to some place, transportation, you know, for example, the, the the pathways that would get you to an opportunity. Yeah. And whereas I went to a grammar school. Um, and... Yes, because they were still in parts of the country. The grammar schools were all, the system just kept on going. Yeah. yeah. And I was I was invited back to a school prize giving uh, not so long ago, which was a bit of a shock. I think they found me on LinkedIn. I don't know, I, and it was just a complete surprise. They'd obviously not checked my school record. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, glossing over that, I might have mentioned that. <laughs> it, the, the beauty as well of, of the the comprehensive is that it was it was a, it was forward thinking, and you had a couple of people, a number of people would come and give inspirational talks. One was one of your MPs, Derek Foster. That's right. Yeah. What an influence on you and your outlook. Can you perhaps talk about how Derek? He did. I mean, he was an amazing person. Actually, I mean, he's sadly passed away. Um, of, went on to become the chief whip of the Labour Party. Uh, but, you know, the the main thing about him was he was somebody who'd also come from a very deprived background. He'd had a lot of family uh, tragedies and deprivations. And he'd really been turned around too by a combination of education and also, interesting, the Salvation Army that had sort of stepped in at a real low point in his life. Uh, and this, you know, part of the story of County Durham is that infrastructure of self-help and mutual assistance that often, you know, religious organisations play a role in as well. The Quakers and the, lots of the foundations, they set up the Salvation Army, the Catholic Church, with St Vincent and Paul, um, you know, societies, for example. My father, when he was homeless, I mean, they benefited from, you know, funding from all kinds of things, you know, the Women's Institute, the Boys Brigade, the Rotary Club, you know, you can go on and on. There's always somebody there who, you know, will try to step in, you know, to help um, if, you know, they see something uh, that needs to be addressed. And this was the story of Derek Foster, a combination of education and the Salvation Army had given him direction and enabled him to go on to university. He'd gone to Oxbridge, he'd studied PPE, politics, uh, philosophy and economics. And he had then dedicated himself to education in the region. He'd been the head of education for um, the local education authorities. He'd grown up in Sunderland. And when he became the MP, 
uh, for Bishop Auckland, which you know wasn't his home area, but it's very close, obviously, um, in uh, County Durham. He dedicated himself to trying to give local kids the sense that they could achieve things as well. And he'd come to the school, you know, when I was in my teens, trying to sort of think about the future. And I've just been really struck by what a lovely person he was, how approachable he was, how kind, and how he just basically said, look, you can change your circumstance of education. But he also said something which is, I've, has never left me, that education is a privilege. And if you have an education, you've got to do something with it. So it wasn't just education for education's sake, but this is something practical and a tool. And if you've got an education, you've got to give back, which is what he was doing. So he was living and emulating the things that he was preaching. He was a practicing what you preach uh, person. And as much as the um, primary school had seen potentially, your comprehensive had seen potentially, and you know, I think there was a direction towards um, Oxford, uh, that there was an opportunity for you to perhaps excel at, at one of the um, better known universities. Well, it, of course, there's, you know, other universities are available and Durham is a very good one. I have to say that. <laughs> yeah. um, and St. Andrews is where I ended up going as well. Absolutely, obviously. absolutely. But, but I think there was a suggestion that... Um, you should put yourself forward. And I think you had one or two friends who were with you who were offered the opportunity but didn't take it up, but you decided you'd push yourself forward and, and take the exam. Yeah, and it was a, boy, it was this a learning experience? And, you know, it was also quite humiliating, to be frank. But, you know, those things, um, <laughs> if you overcome them, you uh, they, they certainly make you more resilient. And it, it really was an eye-opening experience because I hadn't realised, I don't think anybody at the school had really thought through the fact that, you know, we had no preparation whatsoever for something like this. We didn't even know uh, what it entailed. Nobody in the faculty at the school, the teachers had been to Oxbridge, uh, we did have my English teacher who was a graduate of Durham University and taught at university for a while. He was a doctor and had, um, you know, kind of come back into the school, Dr. Marshall uh, system in County Durham to kind of give back again, somebody very much like Derek Foster. And, you know, it turns out, that, of course, that there's an exam. And in private schools and grammar schools, not all grammar schools, though, it must be said, depends on where you are, they have a whole uh, set of special preparation for this. Yeah. And I basically did it cold. They got hold of an exam paper from you know, kind of a couple of years previously. And I had no idea, you know, what to say I would read at Oxford. I didn't even know what that meant, honestly. And I, 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 but I remembered, you know, Derek Foster done PPE, so why not? But actually, nobody really knew what philosophy was. And there was no economics classes, you know, Bishop Barrington Comprehensive School. And, uh, you know, politics was all the things that were happening around us. And, you know, but I thought, well, at least I'll try. And I do remember, you know, feeling that hot rush, you know, when everything goes black, you know, when you, you pick up this paper and I was sitting in the, you know, one of the rooms with the teacher supervising me as if I could cheat, you know, there was like nothing around me. And I just remember thinking, oh God, you know, what does all this mean? And, you know, the one thing that I remember from the paper, and I just remember also the paper was very crinkly and, you know, I was worried about tearing it and, you know, I had to write all this, uh, you know, these essays. Um, about Schopenhauer and his theory of the will. And I thought, Schopenhauer? Is he a composer? And I thought, no, no, this is philosophy. Of course not. But Schopenhauer, someone in the back of my mind, I thought, sounds like a composer. And I thought, well, he must be German. <laughs> theory of the will. Okay, German, theory of the will. What do I know about theory of the will? Do I know anything about the theory of the will? And, you know, thinking about willpower. And then, you know, I had read as, you know, some you know, rather precocious, you know, teen war and peace in its entirety, in English, of course, just to be very clear. I remember that Tolstoy had this whole wittering on about the will in it that I'd been a little bored by because I was hoping to rush on to Natasha at the dance and, you know, all the other kind of exciting teenage girl, like um, attractive parts of Tolstoy. He's actually quite, you know, a good author for, for teenage girls in parts of this. And uh, But I then was trying, trying to remember back, what was he saying about this? The bits I was, you know, rushing over to get to the main action. And I was dredging back in my brain. Eventually, I started just talking about what I'd remembered from Tolstoy and just thought, oh, God, well, at least I wrote something. And then, of course, you know, I'd not passed, but they invited me um, in for an interview. So they must have seen something in my, you know, address, desperate attempts to, you know, respond to the essay questions. And then that was a bit that got really embarrassing because I had to go down to a, you know, an interview at Oxford. They didn't pay for me to go down either. I had to, you know, break into my all my savings, my part-time jobs and things to get a trip. And nobody told me what to expect. You know, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was doing. Nothing. I mean, the whole thing was just, you know, for for kids, we 
you know, we don't have the software programming for all of this. If you want to use that as an analogy, we just don't know, you know, what we're doing in this. There's no preparation because it's a whole world that has been manufactured. An alien world. Selection. Yes, it's completely and utterly alien. And this has taught me an awful lot about access to education. Just because somebody's, you know, bright, they pass their exams, they might not have basically the conception at all yeah. about what they're dealing with. And this is why standardized tests, you know, they're, they're the algorithms that are built into this are very biased because, of course, they're produced by the people who are setting these up and uh, following their own you know, neural and knowledge and, you know, life pathways. And most people are outside of all of that. And I think this is one of the problems that we're facing with higher education. The opportunity is there for people, but there's all this kind of like big debate about selection and not looking for people from diverse backgrounds. But an awful lot of people are just not in the mix because they just don't know. I knew nothing about Oxford and Cambridge and nobody around me really did either. Although you did you did recognise somebody who was sat alongside waiting to go for in, in for their interview. Um, in fact, I called I called this little section for myself as an aid memoir, Schopenhauer and Schadenfreude. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, because there was a girl from County Durham who I'd met on a school exchange. I mean, one of the great things about County Durham uh, that they um, you know continue to emphasise is arts, culture, and education, even at the hardest of times. And somehow, you know, the the county had tried to retain those budgets for that. Yeah. And you know, for kids like me from poor backgrounds, you know, there was ability to play music, um, uh, musical instruments, choirs, orchestras, uh, cultural exchanges, you know, going to art museums. And I'd gone on a school exchange for the whole of the county to Tübingen in Germany. Uh, and there'd been, again, uh, kids representing all kinds of different schools, yeah. um, including some of the private schools and some of the grammar schools that were still in existence. And the girl that I saw was from one of the grammar schools in another part of County Durham. And I remember on the exchange, because this is the exchange when I realized I was working class and poor, <laughs> because people kept asking me, where are you from? What schools did you go to? What did your dad do? And then as soon as I'd say, some of them would go, oh, and you know, kind of wander off. And I thought, what you don't do I yeah, you're not yeah, I didn't get to finish the, you know, the conversation. I thought we were just getting to know each other. And I realized, no, I was being categorized and put in a box, yeah. not their sort. You know, this is County Durham. We're all from County Durham. What's the matter with them? I thought, you know, because when I was growing up, I didn't really know anybody who wasn't working class. I mean, they might be middle class, but they were all, you know, we had some people at the same school. Nobody, you know, would behave like that. Uh, and then, you know, here we were being discriminatory on this exchange. And this was one of the girls who stuck her nose up at me. And she, I couldn't remember her name, honestly, because I don't think I'd got that far with her because she just wandered off before I you even got to But I didn't really see her on the exchange either because she kept away from me. But she said, oh, my goodness, Fiona Hill, what are you doing here? And I immediately thought, oh, what am I doing here? Yes. And it just sort of went downhill from there. It's like that scene in Billy Elliot, you know, when he shows up. It's such a, but I mean, of course, uh, Robbie, who wrote Billy Elliot's from County Durham, based it on the story of Sir Tom Allen, um, actually, you know, from Siam, who becomes uh, the great opera singer, translates it into ballet. And, you know, a kid from County Durham, same sort of time frame, who, you know, goes off and has these big auditions and people are like, what are you doing here? You know, what right do you have to be there? And that just reinforced the idea that there are some institutions at that time, I mean, there's been a lot of change in Oxford and Cambridge since then, that create so many barriers to entry, but you know, they're really missing out. And yeah. you know, we're missing out on the, the potential of so many people around who have Which given a chance, you know, would absolutely excel. And yeah, and it's the diversity of talent and perspective. And this is why, you know, frankly, um, the United States and the UK are in so much trouble because they're excluding large squares of the population from opportunity. And it's an opportunity for all of society, not just for those individuals. And around about this time as well, and forgive me if I get my timeline slightly mixed up, but there was a there was a, a bit of a, um, a sage moment from an Uncle Charlie. Yes, he, yes. So it's really Cousin uh, Charlie. I mean, as I'm sure everybody knows in the Northeast, I mean, you've probably got the same yeah, thing. Everybody knows family, family, friends and older relatives are often called uncle and aunt, whether they actually are your physical, uh, you know, biological uncle and aunt. Because I sometimes have, I have another Uncle Keith, but he's no relation. He'd always introduce himself as Uncle Keith, no relation, just super close family friend. But Uncle Charlie was my dad's cousin, but he was an older cousin. So he was of another, you know, generation. And he was the person who... Uh, basically encouraged me to go and study Russian. 
because it's the time of the war scares of the 1980s. Although, I mean, I think, you know, at the time we all could feel that there was something happening, but we didn't know all the details. It's only later you realise actually we were on the brink, uh, unfortunately, of a kind of, of a nuclear confrontation in 1983. We could feel it, but we didn't know what was happening. Yeah. And, you know, so you have the declassification <laughs> of the information later. Yeah, but you have threads the day after, uh, all of the popular culture filled with that campaign for nuclear disarmament, green and common women, there's all this kind of stuff happening. And um, some people weren't paying attention. I was paying a lot of attention. I had friends and relatives who were off in the army, you know, so they were off there, you know, on the edge of the Cold War. We had the Falklands War. I knew people who'd gone to fight there. So it all, you know, seemed, you know, fairly real. And a chance encounter with Uncle Charlie down the town in Bishop Auckland on a Saturday. He's talking to my dad and they're talking about all this. Uncle Charlie had fought in World War II. He'd been in the Atlantic convoys and the Merchant Marine, you know, going to Moromansk and Arkhangelsk. And he'd had all this wild, crazy adventures during World War II that we all they used to get, you know, wilder every time you heard them and you couldn't believe them. But actually, a lot of them were true because wild things happened, you know, in those periods. And he's, he, he looks at my dad, looks at me and says, well, you're good at languages, Fiona. Maybe you should go off and uh, study Russian and figure out why the Soviets are trying to bloody well blow us up. Because <laughs> they've been an ally through the World yeah, War. Yeah, they were an ally in World War II. I don't get it. And he was, you know, quite sympathetic to the whole, you know, idea of still being allied. So he couldn't figure it out. And I thought, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> why so, I go so blasé thinking, yeah, I could do that. I could try to do that. Yeah, I, I could try. I mean, I, you know, I got to Germany. Team building can do attitude. Yeah. I really like it. Yeah, I thought, okay, yeah, I could, I could try to do that. Nobody said I couldn't. Uncle Charlie's saying, yeah, why not? And then Uncle Charlie starts to help try to find ways of figuring that out. And I got money from the Durham Miners Association in 1984 during the miners' strike that had come via the miners of Donbass in Ukraine, the place that's been absolutely devastated as we're speaking, you know, basically in the fighting between Russia and uh, Ukraine, the place that's been completely mauled in this horrible carnage of war. But back in uh, the time of the miners' strike in 1984, miners from around the world in solidarity with the British miners raised money. And the miners of County Durham and the miners of Don Bassett had some links going back to the 1920s. Representatives of the Durham Miners Association went out to Don Bass in the 1920s. And they'd sent money. And my uncle Charlie uh, told us that there was uh, basically a fund that had, uh, you know, kind of was set up for children of former miners, because by that point, most people were former miners, uh, for education. And I could apply to a bursary there. And I mean, we didn't know how to do it. And Uncle Charles would just get on the bus and go to Red Hills, the Pittman's Parliament in, you know, in County Durham. Uh, you better go with your dad, because he's the one who was the miner. <laughs> so, and dad was like, I don't know if I've still got all my, you know, old, the uh, you know, pay books and things, because you'd have to prove he was a miner. So dad, like, you know, went back home and started scuffling around trying to see if he could, um, you know, find some of his old mining stuff. And we went on the bus, <laughs> went there and went in and there's like, you know, in a little waiting room in an inquiries place. Yeah. And she was shop. Uncle Charlie was right. And yeah, the, and I got some money. In fact, I think they just handed it over to me as long as I proved, you know, what I need to do for eventually for, you know, a language program. It wasn't like the next day, but it was, you know, as I discovered um, that I could do a you know, summer language program learning Russian. And I needed that then to, you know, to go on to university. I needed to do this before, yeah. you know, before I went. And what drew you to St Andrews? Which is um, it was partly chance. And I think that a lot of this, you know, when you talk to people who come from, you know, kind of backgrounds, you know, they don't know an awful lot about what they're going to do and where they're going to go. And I mean, obviously, <clears throat> lots of good universities in County Durham, as you said. But I kept being told by my teachers, well, you'll probably have to live at home. I mean, not if you went to Sunderland or Newcastle, but if you go to Durham, you'll have to live at home because you, you know, close enough that you probably just have to take the bus there. And I thought, well, that's not going to be, you know, kind of much of a university experience. So living at home with my mum and dad and trying to take the bus up all the time. And my mum and dad said, oh, you should really, you know, get the full university experience and County Durham would pay for it, you know, based on means testing. I, you know, mum and dad had no money whatsoever to put towards this. And so I started kind of, looking around to, in the library and other places if I could see if I could get the brochures of universities and there were a few that the teachers had collected and put in the sixth form room at Bishop Barrow we had a sixth form then which is pretty small and in those things there was a brochure of St Andrews and it was in colour and everything else was in black and white and I thought oh, great marketing exactly great marketing and they had some colour photographs I thought, oh my god this place is beautiful and so my 
and you know the, uh, there was the Oxford debacle. I was obviously that was that that was that was done. I didn't I didn't get in. Not not a surprise. And my mum and my sister and I decided that we'd go on. Uh, we'd go to St Andrews, you know, for a, um, a long weekend. And we took the train and several buses. I can't remember. It was a bit of a complicated way to get there because we were trying to do it cheaply. We all shared one B and B when we got there. <laughs> you know on a, on a shoestring but the amazing thing was that um as we got out of the bus station trying to figure out where we would go we weren't really sure the university was even open because it was a holiday we ran into another person who was going to be one of my great mentors at st andrews uh john sullivan who was a, a lecturer in, in the russian department a very kind of senior figure there in the university and he heard us as we were milling around the bus but we were talking quite loudly wondering where to go and he was from yorkshire and he kind of comes up and he says, why are you there? Hello there. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> it's like great Yorkshire accent. Yeah. I hear some other northerners, you know, what are, what are you doing here? Can I help? You sound lost. And we explained and he was like, oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, you know, I am the Russian department. Wow. And he had the keys to the department in his pocket. He's like, come on, we'll go to your you know, place you're staying and I'll show you around. And that nice. was it. I was like, I'm going there. I'm going here. And he, he told me that he would help um, to, you know, um, explain to me how to navigate the you know the application uh, process as well because look this is what people need they need some help yeah. again this is how i mean this is what you work on right it's like how do you make the most of talent how do you enable people to reach their potential on anything you know vocational uh, training people just need some help they need to know that things are out there that there is the availability of this opportunity it's not like if you're if you're in a vacuum that's where you are you don't know about things and, and that's really what spurred me off to write the book yeah. with more of a memoir because i wanted to tell these stories so it wasn't just a clinical description of why we're in such a crisis right now economically and politically in the us and the uk because there's so many parallels but how a story would illustrate this initially i'd want to do it thematically but it ended up more following the chronology of my life and career um, because it just made for a, a better narrative because telling stories is what we do in the northeast isn't it we just tell a lot of stories to each other well that's, that's, that's not when yeah. you do learn from everybody's stories that's that back to, to the earliest possible time of human life thinking about you know the education you 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 you've got your ma in san andrews and then obviously you, you've had experience, and again, the timeline might be slightly skewed here, but you, you did spend time in Russia. I did, yes. You made a correlation between parts of your experience of the Northeast and, and the way that that culture and, the, and how, it, how the communities were with parts of Russia and your experiences there. But also, you, in, at, a, at a later um, time of going to Russia, I think you were actually sitting in a room with Vladimir Putin. So you've you've sort of seen... All side, uh, several sides of, of Russia, not only the academic side to actually understand the community and its history, but also actually seeing it close up and personal more than right. Russians themselves. Yeah, I mean, look, there's nothing like first-hand direct experience to you know help you see things in the world. And often the way that that experience is processed depends on where you're coming from in the first instance. So the first time that I went to the Soviet Union, as it was then, was in 1987. While I was at St Andrews, it was a you know equivalent of being sort of junior year abroad. It was between my, um, you know, as they call it, in America parlance. But also, you know, at the end of my third year, St Andrews is a four-year um, term, uh, yeah. so four-year course of education. It was the end of my third year before my final year. And I mean, I was just immediately struck by how similar it was to the northeast of England. Again, might be counterintuitive to most people, but again, think about what the north of England is like. It is basically uh full of nationalized industry or certainly was when you know i was growing up because after world war ii the commanding heights as they call it of uh, british industry had been devastated and the state had to step in british steel british coal british rail british shipbuilding and everybody i knew worked for the state my dad had gone from british coal to british steel briefly to a brickworks, but I don't know who that fell under, but then in the National Health Service, so British Health, you know, basically nationalised industry. I we Very few people who worked in the private sector, might be the local plumber, electrician, a couple of people with a, you know, a small shop, for example, a couple of family members at a corner shop, but that's it, or farmers, you know. So I go to the 
Soviet Union. It's just one big nationalized industry. And it's also falling apart. And the shops are all empty. The shops are empty at home as well. The shops are empty at home because there's no demand because people have lost their jobs. Massive unemployment closing down. In the Soviet Union, loads of demand, but the whole system has broken down. But the supply side isn't working. You know, so I start thinking about all this. It really, you know, opens my mind, but I'm making connections and parallels that most people wouldn't do. And then, you know, as you said, fast forward, you know, I end up working uh, first of all, at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, when I get there to uh, go to grad school and I'm doing technical assistance projects, I, I moved to the Brookings Institution, where I still am now, and I start doing research on why things didn't turn out as people expected in Russia. And a lot of it comes back to the stuff that I'd internalized from home. If you've had decades of working for the state and no entrepreneurial initiative being encouraged and people aren't being educated for these kinds of jobs, that's going to be much more difficult. And if there isn't that experience of private property, home ownership, and all of that had to be created from scratch in Russia, yeah, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you're going to have, this is going to be a huge wrenching dislocation, not something that happens all kind of smoothly. And Vladimir Putin's the product of that. He comes right out, he's born in 1952. And his whole experience is of the Soviet Union after World War II. And he is a Soviet guy, the way that he thinks of the world, as well as then infused with this sort of deeper mystical almost versions of Russian history that he's, you know, kind of created uh, for himself. And being able to see him close up and, you know, observe him told me an awful lot about him. And the, I, I wrote a book with a colleague called Mr. Putin Operative in the Kremlin, did sort of two editions of that while I was at Brookings, trying to explain Putin in the context of his life and the way that he would see the world, you know, very much similar to the way we're talking too, because we're all products of our environments. So what was the environment that shaped Putin? That was what the book was trying to get at. So how then does it help us to understand how he thinks? Yeah. And in, in the, a couple of the observations from that meeting, um, the humanized the man, because I think I think that's a, that's another situation we find ourselves in with everything that's going on in the world. You can overlay all sorts of attributes to an individual that makes them almost like this sort of mythical creature that that is that is causing yeah. <clears throat> But he's, a, but he's a man with with eyesight problems because cards had to be written to a certain size, and he'd stay. Yes, I've got my glasses on my head. Yep, standing in the same position. Because I could read his cards; they were so large. <laughs> but, but but also the fact that he had to stage the way that the meeting would look so that exactly he didn't look overplayed by anybody, and you were there for a particular reason, and and it just it, to me it, that 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 speaks more of a a lack of confidence than an overconfidence. And it's somebody that has to control everything to be able and to- And that's, that's what we're seeing in Ukraine. Absolutely right, David, absolutely right. I mean, that's it. We have to remember everyone's human being and everybody is shaped by various forces. And a lot of people are much more vulnerable than they might appear. Yeah. And, and you know, we see now with Putin, he's kind of acting out his fantasy of history. One of the um, chapters uh, in the book that, Clifford Gaddy, my colleague and I wrote, Mr. Putin, is called The History Man. <laughs> and, you know, because we were looking at different facets of his personality, it was really from these times sitting next to him and talking to all the people around him, <clears throat> we realised he was obsessed with Russian history, his version of it. Yep. You know, and I'm equally obsessed with the history of the northeast of England, right? But you know, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people are. We, we kind of think we know what we know about our history. <clears throat> and Putin... Um, avails himself of all these documents that are in the Kremlin archives and various books, but he's not looking at world history. He's not putting it in a context. He's looking at it from one particular vantage point. And I was trained as a historian, and you know that that can be very risky yeah. you know, because you're looking for, it's confirmation bias. You know, you have a particular bias. And you're just looking for the, uh, the material and the facts and the figures that bolster the view that you already have, which is what he was doing. And that's, you know, how I picked up on, on all of that from these encounters with him, the way that he talk about things. Well, Mr. Putin, the history man has become an absolute danger to all of us because he's trying to impose his view of Russian history and therefore European and world history on all of us through this war in Ukraine. He's saying that Ukraine doesn't exist. Yeah. And look, you know, when we grew up in the uh, Northeast of England and you know, for people listening to this, just think, you know, at one point, the Northeast of England was under the Roman empire. We have Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. You know, so if we pick our point in history, should we be part of Rome still? And then we were part of uh, the Danish uh, Empire, Danelaw. Yeah. Um, for hundreds of years, it was under Rome and then, you know, equally under the Danes. Northumbria was a standalone entity also for, for generations within uh, the United Kingdom. 
was ruled by the Prince Bishops of Durham, for example. We've got a complicated history and people have come from all over, uh, all of the Irish and the Welsh and the Scots and the people from other parts of England that have come to work in the industry during the kind of the big flourishing of the Northeast in the late 1800s and early part of uh, you know the 19th and uh, 20th centuries. I mean, there's, there's really so many places have these complex histories and Putin's trying to sort of impose one particular view on this. And that's really what this war in Ukraine is all about, is the right for Ukrainians to just say who they are and where they want to be and where, where you know they want to go in the future, not to have somebody else dictating it for them. One of the things that that knowledge and that passion that you have for history and for seeking connections between situations that have been historical, also current and contemporary political, um, was of great help to the White House because they've obviously called on your expertise. Um, and that's seeing you work for the administration of George W. Bush, um, Barack Obama, and a certain Mr. Trump. So with those three in mind, just as a sort of a little bit of a segue break, very quick break, could you perhaps sum them up in, in as few words as you can, what each one was like? <laughs> Obviously, they're all very different. Hold out the pin and lobbed in the grenade. Oh. Yeah. No, but, but it's interesting. So George W. Bush was actually the most appealing in terms of personality because he comes across as a very warm, genuine person. Now, we can you know, have to put aside here invasion of Iraq and all kinds of horrors that you know happened on um, his watch here. Spurred on by you know the great tragedy of 9/11, of course, but he was also very intellectually curious. I mean, I mean he had got a bad rap for uh, people making questions about you know his intellectual attainment because he obviously did have at some point dyslexia or some other you know learning disorder. But he was the kind of person who enjoyed the interaction, asked really good questions, and you could tell was learning as he spoke. He didn't. He wasn't really one for reading everything through, but you know he would actually let his briefings go on for far longer than they needed to because he was trying to figure things out. And again, he was warm and he was friendly. Um, he called me Blair's girl, actually, because of you know my accent. He said, where's that accent from? You are an American, right? And I said, yeah, yes, you know, I naturalized American, so otherwise I wouldn't be here. <laughs> and I explained it was from uh, County Durham. And he said, I've been there, haven't I? And I said, yes, you have. <laughs> you went to visit Tony Blair. You flew over my parents' house in uh, your helicopter, went to Sedgefield and you visited. And I said, they waved at you, you know, so it's kind of because he's got that sort of jokey, you know, personality. He said, I, yeah, I'm sure I still remember seeing them in that garden, right? And I said, yes, yes, of course. Because that's, he, he's, he's just friendly and warm and curious. Yeah. So, you know, that's take with that what you will in personality. He was actually, it was very enjoyable briefing him. Some of the other people were out with him, not so much. I mean, and he didn't always, you know, pay uh, attention the way that you would like and followed the direction. And he obviously made quite a lot of uh, decisions, including the invasion of Iraq, which, you know, pretty horrific. But anyway, Barack Obama... You had a working relationship. You had a... Great working relationship with him. Yeah, insofar as, you know, it's not like I saw him every day kind of thing. Uh, and I was a briefer from the National Intelligence Council at the time. Same with Barack Obama, because I was there for the transition. Barack Obama, very cerebral as people um, would expect, read everything in advance, heard you out, asked a couple of questions, and that was that. And, you know, he would adopt a pose with his hand on his chin, looking a little like Rodin's The Thinker, the, the sculpture clothed, of course, you know, but really kind of penetrating gaze. Um, you, you had no idea whether he was thinking, you guys are idiots, I have no idea what you're talking about, or this is really all wrong. You know, he was, was very respectful, but um, yeah. at real distances. And then, you know, uh, Trump, no interest whatsoever in being briefed. Not interested in reading it, not interested in asking him any questions, um, just wanted you to go away. And it was just a real challenge um, trying to find any way of working in you know kind of a group in tandem with others to yeah. you know get him to get the information that he obviously needed to function as a president on things like foreign policy and he was all about how someone looked um you know kind of what he knew about their background he just was not interested you know unless you were a billionaire um you know kind of, he, he would listen to people from the uh intelligence community particularly if he thought that they were badasses as he would think you know, that they were kind of people who'd done something you know really um you know of note um 
So he he had a very uh, uh, well, you know, I think everybody at this point has pretty much figured this out. I've had it yeah. exhausted to talk about, honestly, because it was just such a challenge just trying to, we'd have to come up with so many creative ways of trying to get information to him. And I mean, I never took it personally. I thought, well, that's just the way this guy is. Yeah. Um, and he's not going to listen to me. I'm just some middle-aged woman with a funny accent. Uh, and it doesn't matter. I've written a book and I know all this stuff. He doesn't care. Who am I? Did he think you were a secretary at one point? Did he oh just... yeah, I mean, he thought, but he thought everybody was a secretary. If you had the title secretary, secretary of state, secretary of defense, I mean, you know, you're a secretary one way or another. And a lot of us, you know, did have to take notes. I mean, everybody was staff. And, you know, one of the, the classic examples of this is Rex Tillerson, who'd been the CEO of ExxonMobil, you know, the world's time, you know, largest company, highest valuation company. Um, he tantamount to being God in, you know, the industrial uh, circles. And he'd retired and he'd been asked to come in to be Secretary of State and immediately just got dealt with the stuff. It, it wasn't even interesting what Rex Tillerson had to say about dealing with Putin and, um, you know, making deals in the energy industry. It just wanted him to be there, you know, figuring out how to make the connections for him. It was all about Trump. And, and as we know, it all unraveled um, as, as history will tell. And you, in 20, 2019, were called to Trump's impeachment and to give to give evidence. And that, a cursory look at that would think, oh yeah, okay, so it was a meeting you had to go to, but the pressure, the 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 stress that that, that comes with that, um, because the whole world's looking in on this situation, and you've 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 moved from a position of being well known in your own field, certainly well respected in in your experience and what you can bring to bear, but suddenly being judged on the way you look, on on your accent in a completely. <laughs> way by a much bigger audience how did you cope with that i mean how is that 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 experience must have been almost life-changing well it obviously was a life-changing experience i was somebody who was used to working behind the scenes and you know just getting on with it um just doing the job that i needed to do and i wasn't looking to be out in the spotlight anyway as you said i was pretty well known in my own field i mean you know i was i mean there are many people who are you know well known in the russian field and um i had no desires to be you know out there in any larger way i mean the reason that i went into the administration was because i'd already had all this experience i knew people who were going in there and there was a job needed to be done because the russians had interfered in the election and there was all this it was a massive threat to national security and when i was asked i thought well if i say no to this am i just going to sit in the sidelines the whole time and not take responsibility i couldn't live with myself when i'd been asked and just turned it down you know, I always remember my, you know, my, my family, you know, my dad was in the mines and my, all my grandparents, everything. If there was an accident, you went and helped. And this felt like an accident, right? You don't just stand around waiting for somebody else to do something. So I thought, okay, well, I've got to go and do something. You know, just keep my head on my shoulders. And that's actually how I initially approached this. I thought, okay, well, look, I knew that something, you know, really awful was happening. And I, I needed to step up and tell people what I knew. Yeah. And uh, I believed in congressional oversight and I was doing my job and clearly a lot of other people were doing something else entirely and I needed to speak up and people were being maligned and people's lives were on the line and you see what's happening in Ukraine now I mean that's a direct line from all of this stupidity when the Russians think that we don't care about Ukraine and our national security was being imperiled in the United States and elsewhere too but I was going to have to explain myself and I had to have a lawyer I had to have a whole group of people around me but, you know, the main thing was to really prepare. So I had to prepare for it. And as you said, I mean, the ridiculous things, a lot of the preparations were into how I was going to present myself. Because as a woman, this is when you realize it kind of gets in the way because people scrutinize what women wear. They scrutinize how they look. They scrutinize how they speak. And I had to be able to get my points across without being a distraction in myself. And I knew that, you know, when I tried to brief Trump before, I was like, who's this middle-aged woman with this weird accent? No, thank you. It wasn't George W. Bush or, you know, someone like Barack Obama who were going to, you know, give you a hearing. Was and I was going to have millions of people listening, not just members of Congress who were looking at me thinking, what the heck are you doing here? So I was going to have to explain myself. And that's, you know, how we end up, here we are full circle talking to you because I had to say who I was, why I was there. Yeah. Why um, am I this person with this accent? How did I get there and what right do I have to tell them the truth about what had happened? I had to remove all distractions. I had to take away all of the layers so that only my voice 
telling the truth could be heard. And, you know, so I focused on the job and it was only really after um, everything that I stood back and thought, oh my goodness, what just happened there? Yeah. Because it was just one of those, the world suddenly shifted. And it wasn't just the historic moment of the impeachment of a president for doing something you know, very dramatic. And of course, that's the first impeachment. Second yeah. time he tries to, you know, stage a coup. And we, we're still in all of this right now in the United States. It's just all still going on. And I realized, you know, I was having to sort of step up also in defense of democratic institutions and, you know, the health of American democracy. You, sometimes you just got to stand up and speak out. Yeah, it, it was, was it. quite bizarre how things seem to move. And, and there was, and you could see this in other areas as well. Um, you could talk about the UK right now, but, but how certain decisions can be made and certain um, matters take effect. And there seems to be this apathy that things aren't being changed. Things aren't being challenged. Things that the voices have been sounded. And in the UK, we've got um, the Good Law Project that is doing quite a, quite a good, and we've had the guys on the, um, on the podcast talking about the work they do to hold government to account. Honestly, everyone can do that. Look, and we're seeing now we've got nurses on strike, we've got uh, railway workers, you've got the, the representatives of the unions, we've got individuals doing something. People have got to stand up and be counted. And, you know, that I think, you know, the, one of the many reasons that I did this, but it's deeply rooted in my own experience of growing up um, in an environment where people had to take responsibility for themselves, otherwise nothing would happen. That's like the levelling up agenda now as well in the UK, the, don't work for the government, figure out you know, how you can do things for yourselves, how people can pull together. And when I was growing up um, in the Northeast of England, there was still enough of that, that infrastructure of opportunity I'm talking about, but mutual uh, self-help, you know, communal assistance, people helping out their friends, neighbors and family. Uh, and it used to be centered in the workplace. You know, when dad had his um, uh, you know, vegetable garden, if there were people at the hospital who were, you know, not doing very well and they needed some extra food, dad would take the food and share them. And the, the local allotments would do that. They would raise money, you know, for things. People are always doing that. This was kind of the ultimate expression of this, just sort of standing up and saying, look, this is wrong. Yeah. And I also at that point thought to myself, well, what have I got to lose? I was already in my fifties. I've had a great career. I can't complain about it. Okay, these, what are they gonna do with these guys? Send me back to Bishop Hawkins? Great, fine. I love being back in Bishop Auckland. That's it. Okay, I, I've I've had a good ride here, uh, I'm, I'm, but I'm not going to just let these guys throw this country down the drain here, because that's really what they were doing. And I think that's how everybody should feel now, uh, the, right now. I mean, people are running the United States and the United Kingdom into the ground because they're putting themselves first rather than kind of thinking about the larger groups around them. And when people put person their own person and party before everything else, before the country, you've got a real problem. That's been happening in both countries. Yeah. I think we're missing something in the fit and proper person. Um, That's right. Evaluation of people who take public office. That's and, right. Yeah. Attention we're taking to actually. And people are taking it for the wrong reasons. I mean, Derek Foster for me is a sort of epitome of somebody doing something for the right reasons. It wasn't about personal power and money and influence. But looking at what has happened to you and I was just reading your just, just, just a this is a snapshot of things you've been doing and I get tired just looking at your schedule um but your your book was published 2021 that's um, right October 2021 yeah which is which is this <laughs> nice little number here which I think is is brilliant we haven't really talked about the fact that the phrase itself which is the um the title of the book there is nothing for you here um your dear father Alf um referenced that to you uh yeah, he said, there's nothing for you here, Pet, in 1984. I do too, but the American uh, publishers are like, they'll think it's about cats and dogs. And I'm like, oh. Yeah, they'll go in the wrong section of the library. The wrong section of the library, exactly. Yeah. So, so where that, that was a particular snapshot of time of 1984, 90% 90 youth unemployment at the time, yeah. I mean, for school leavers, because people, you know, it took them forever to find, you know, a job or something else. Yeah. The 10% was somebody who had, you know, going off to college or vocational training apprentice only eventually people would find it but you know they would it would take a really long time and he was basically saying look if you've got a chance to go to college don't think about sticking around here if there's nothing for you here pet you, you know you've got a chance go off and do something but I mean I always had the intention of coming back 
which has been you know kind of a bit tricky to find those pathways so in a way i am coming back by you know trying to bring things back to come to durham and in my head when i was writing the book i was thinking you know i've been away a long time and i want to put you know the kind of place on the map for other people to see that there was something there was something for people that actually and there is something you know for people now and we can build it ourselves and i want to figure out how i can give back you know to the region that set me off on this path i think you can i think you can say without a shadow of doubt fiona you have most definitely helped put the northeast on the map um, it's always been on the map honestly and i mean there's so many amazing things happen in the northeast it's just people sometimes are just not aware of it we need to shout it out yeah yeah uh, you, I mean, you've, the book was published back in 2021. Uh, you've been on a, um, a lecture, book and lecture tour for, must be... It, it, yeah, on, the best part of the year. Yeah, I mean, more than a year now. Yeah. You've, uh, you've been on Desert Island Discs, which I thought was was fabulous because I'll tell it's you... It's been what, a kind of achievement, honestly. <laughs> you no, know, I love that. You know what I love that more than anything else? The, the, the song that you took forward, because I played that song to death when I was the same age as you, from the other Matt Johnson. This is the day, yeah. What a great, what a great song. I had that and played it to death. So yeah, it was actually the one that kept making me think every day could be this is the day when things fall into place, right? Exactly. It's not like, don't get disturbed. Like, yeah, that was yesterday. You know, <laughs> this is the day. <laughs> but it was, it was. I mean, that that in itself, I think, as a soundtrack to and 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 then you've got Ghost Town from the specials and. Uh, oh God, and Terry Hall. Terry, that was so sad to hear that he that he passed. Um, yeah. you, you, you've also um, done the BBC Reef Lecture and you've been honoured with the position of Chancellor of Durham University, which congratulations. I mean, it's, it's a oh, thank you. Fabulous appointment. With that particular role, do you, are you, are you shaping a, a sort of plan for that? Do you have a, what does it, I mean, this is going to sound like a really basic question, should I know the answer, but what does the Chancellor do? What What is that job? Well, I mean, it's largely a ceremonial and ambassadorial role. I mean, a lot of presiding uh, or helping to preside, you know, doing all of this yourself, obviously, um, over graduations. But I think it's also, you know, a platform, uh, you know, to advocate for education. Uh, and obviously for the students of Durham, and Durham is one of the, you know, leading educational institutions in the United Kingdom, not just in the United States, you know, but also Durham itself, uh, the university set up in the Durham Castle in the heart of the region yeah. uh, by the bishops um, of Durham, you know, to uh, basically foster um, more intellectual endeavor, research and sort of thinking about the future. And higher education is under question at the moment. And I'd like to at least to kind of think about how I can work with the university and you know the rest of the region. And we've got Newcastle University in Sunderland and yep. you know Teesside and then you know the colleges in Middlesbrough, Bishop Auckland and elsewhere about um how to make education really real for people again, because it's a lifelong process of education. I've learned that. So and back in the day, the, you know, Durham University lecturers would go and talk to the minors and you know talk to schools. There's still a lot of that happening. And just you know how I could play a role in you know trying to enhance that, and to emphasise how important education is. So I'm kind of you know thinking, and obviously you know I take the lead from people at the university. I mean they've already you know got a lot going on, and you know, I'm just trying to you know figure out. I haven't really started yet about how I might take that forward. That's going to be exciting. I'm really looking forward to it. I know that um, some of the guys that I've worked with in Southwest Durham News, Archie, right. you've spoken to as yes, well. Yes, some others that I've spoken to. Yes, that's uh, that's been great. So I'm, you know, yeah. my own way to be able to put something back in those areas. Um, finally, uh, you've given me a huge amount of your time and I appreciate you've got a very busy day today. Yeah, I've actually got to go and talk to another group very quickly now, so I'm sorry about that. I mean, it's always like kind of one of these things that, you know, you find yourself trapped in back-to-back -back things because, look, it is really important trying to do, you know, what Derek Foster did. I mean, yeah. I always kind of felt to myself, I owe it to people like Derek Foster to do the same thing. You know, get out there and just encourage people to say, look, if I can do it, honestly, you can too. And where there's a will, there's a way, but there also has to be the opportunity given to people. And the opportunity isn't just saying, hey, you can do this. It's trying to figure out how you can do this, that wherewithal, the infrastructure for that opportunity. Because so many opportunities came along that I couldn't take because there wasn't the means uh, to take advantage of them, like Oxford, you yes. know, back in the day because of all the barriers to entry that were there. You know, how do you think about removing these kinds of barriers for people? Yeah, and and not least of all, you were not put off by 
the failures of not getting into Oxford or being locked back on certain right, things. Exactly. Told you had a, a funny accent or you were dressed in a particular way. Um, it's pushing through that and actually having the confidence in yourself to to make the success that you have. Dr. Fiona Hill, this has been a real pleasure. Very much enjoyed talking to you. Uh, if it wasn't for the fact that I know that you've got to find out about our time and I probably would have bored you, but I could have listened and talked. Well, I'd, I'd be very happy to chat to you and you know, I'm really thrilled to be able to um, to do this. And let's, you know, find another time to That's have another great. chat later, you know, perhaps once I get, you know, properly installed in the, the role of Chancellor, because, you know, one of the, you know, the goals is to help put the spotlight um, not just onto the university, but on the region, because, I mean, that's, you know, obviously the, re the university is really at the heart of all of that, as it, you know, has been for a very long time now, going back to the 19th century. It's been a pleasure talking to you, been a delight, and I'm sure there's a huge amount of insight being drawn from the conversation, which I'm sure our audience are going to love. So thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much, David. Really great to talk to, talk to you and, you know, to everybody else as well. Just my very best wishes. Here's the podcast follow forecast. The follow account is high today and getting higher. To avoid cloudy events in future and unexpected drops in insight, we strongly recommend following this podcast. If you like it, please leave a sunny review.